After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Now, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear from me, hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're asking the question, what is revealed about the person of Jesus? Well, if you uh, had been some of the very first people to um, encounter the Gospel of Matthew, you would have almost certainly heard it rather than read it. It's one of the things we often point out about reading the Gospels, and in fact reading any of the Bible, is that this was written into what was primarily an aural culture. It was one where you heard more than you read. Actually, the huge majority of people wouldn't have been uh, taught to read and write, and the the primary method for um, encountering stories and tales and history, for that matter, was to hear it read. So Matthew's gospel would have been uh, written down on some sort of papyrus. It would have been uh, transported around uh, what we would now think of as the Roman Empire and uh, simply read out in those little groups of early Christians, maybe 20, maybe 30 people crammed into somebody's front room um, as they heard the stories of Jesus, as they heard this Jesus revealed to them. And what you'd have heard so far, and what we now count as the first 10 chapters of Matthew, Maybe it's worth a tiny aside to say, I don't know whether you realize, but the chapters and verses are a relatively modern invention from the last few hundred years, simply your method of going, we're talking about this bit. Actually, it was simply written as a book, a tale, a story. This is what we want to tell you about Jesus. But if you'd got to this point in Matthew's gospel, if you'd heard the first 10 chapters, what you'd have heard was, would have been a compelling portrait of Jesus' ministry. In particular, you'd have heard in chapters 5 and 6, well, the end sort of 4 and 5 and 6, you'd have heard this staggering, astonishing, life-changing teaching of Jesus. What we now think of as the Beatitudes. Jesus' teaching sort of pulled together, compressed, put thematically what he taught over some three years of bringing the crowds together and showing them what it looked like in practice, in real life, in everyday situations to live out the life and kingdom of God. It's teaching that has never been bettered. It's teaching that still resonates today. It's teaching that for those who heard it the first time and for those who hear it and take it seriously today is genuinely life-changing. Not simply little bumper sticker bits of wisdom, not simply something for an internet meme that can be neatly put in an Instagram square, but something that simply says, this is the life you were always intended to lead. This is what it means to be truly human. This is the way that God, your creator, who loves you through and through, intends you to live. Not because it's a killjoy, but quite the opposite, because he wants to fill you with joy. Not because he wants to stop your life having fun, but because he wants your life to be lived to its fullest. So, if you'd heard Matthew's gospel so far, you'd have heard this astonishing teaching of the master teacher. 
You'd have then read in what we now call chapters 8 and 9 of these quite mind-blowing miracles. We read of him curing someone with leprosy. We hear of him uh, raising the centurion's um, servant. Uh, We uh, read of him uh, casting out evil, healing many, calming the storm. Time and again, Jesus doing those things that people at the time and people today looked at with open mouths, really hardly able to believe the evidence of their own eyes. Again, here is a Jesus that leaves us reeling. He doesn't just teach with an authority to change lives. He acts with an authority that surely is only God's. We opened our service with some songs about the creative power of God. And if there is a God who has made all things, then what we see in Jesus is that same creator God remaking people and lives that are broken, bringing healing and wholeness and new life. And if you'd read Matthew's gospel or heard it read to you, you'd have not therefore only heard this astonishing teaching, these quite astounding miracles, you'd have also seen how Jesus' mission had begun to spread, that he'd begun to not simply go town to town, village to village, meeting small groups or larger groups of people. He'd begun to send out his friends, the people that we now call the disciples. Chapter 10 of Matthew talks about them being sent out to say the things that Jesus was saying and to do the things that Jesus was doing. And you'd have imagined that of all the people that would have heard these stories of Jesus, of all the people that would have at the very time seen him at work, the person more than anything else or more than anyone else who would have been most delighted, the person who would have felt most vindicated, the person who would have had the most to celebrate would have been the person that we now call John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Now, that's not simply because John was Jesus' cousin. Though you'd have thought that itself might have been a good reason to celebrate. Member of the family, doing so well, doing something remarkable. All the crowds are coming out to see him. But you'd have also imagined it because John the baptizer was the one who staked everything on saying, this is the one. Chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. In other words, here is the one that has been promised. He's greater than I. He's the one that my life is meant to point to. He's the one who's going to bring blessing, the gift of God's Spirit, and judgment and vindication for God's people. You'd have thought at this point in Jesus' ministry, maybe a year or two in, having heard the astonishing teaching, seen the remarkable miracles, and seeing the beginning of that spread of his good news. You'd have thought John the Baptist would be basically making his bunting and getting it ready to hang out. You'd have thought he's vindicated. You'd have thought he would be the one dancing a jig towards all of Jesus' meetings, going, see, didn't I tell you? It's him, my cousin, look. Whereas actually what you find in chapter 11 is that actually he's in a bit of a blue funk. He's in a moment of deep sort of malaise. Now, some of that is entirely understandable. By this point in the narrative, John the baptizer is not free anymore. 
Up to chapter 3, we discover that John is one of the freest people you'll ever meet, at least in the sense of he he doesn't know any sort of boundaries to life because he lives in the desert. He lives a a life of sort of just, he chooses what to do. He's in the desert. He sort of, uh, what do they say, wild honey and locusts. He wears sort of animal skins for his clothes. He does what he chooses to do, and he fulfills God's purpose for his life. By now, he's in prison. He's in prison because he has dared to say of King Herod, the puppet king imposed by the Romans on the proud people of ancient Israel, he said of King Herod, you have no right to flout God's laws. You may count yourself as king, but you can't simply do anything you like. What King Herod had done specifically was to marry the ex-wife of his brother-in-law in in, I mean, even if that weren't enough, the circumstances of that happening were dubious to say the least. And John had had the temerity, the audacity, actually the sheer bravery to do what nobody else would do, which is to stand up to King Herod and say, in God's name, you are wrong. And to point to Jesus and say, King Herod, you may imagine yourself as the king. You aren't God's king. This is the king. Because that was the expectation of God's people. The whole expectation that had been building over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years was that God would send the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, who would be God's king in God's place for God's people in God's time. Now, if you were King Herod, that was rebellious talk. That was traitorous talk. That was very dangerous talk. And John now was in prison. And John begins to hear, through visitors to him in prison, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing, and how his message is spreading. But far from feeling, well, at least the thing I've been put in prison for is happening. At least this person that I was pointing to is coming into his own. At least I was right. What he actually goes is, oh, maybe I was wrong. My agenda for Jesus is not being fulfilled. What I wanted Jesus to do, what I thought he was going to do, he's not doing. Verse 2 of chapter 11, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? You see, It seems that what John was desperate for God's king to do was to do what he thought God's king was meant to do, which is very simply kick the puppet king off his throne, kick out the Romans who were, after all, um, uh, the, the invaders of God's people and their country, and to sit himself rightfully on the throne. And, let's face it, get John out of prison. Surely that's what he must have been longing for. Surely sitting in this horrible, dark, dank dungeon, we're not talking any sort of modern prison you could ever imagine. This was a place you only got food if your friends brought it to you. You only saw the light of day if you could pay the guard enough. This was a deeply, unimaginably awful place. And he hears what Jesus is doing and goes, hang on, I promised you were going to bring the pouring out of God's spirit, and I haven't heard that yet. And hang on, I said you were coming with a winnowing fork and a threshing um, uh, machine in your hands. I said you were coming with judgment. Well, you haven't judged Herod yet. Get on with it. 
worth a quick diversion, isn't it? To ask ourselves an awkward question. I wonder how many times in my life I've sat in my own dungeon, sat in my own dark place, and alongside the perfectly reasonable and right and actually appropriate prayer that simply says to God, I need your help. I've demanded that he prove himself by following my agenda. I wonder how many times I've said to Jesus, well, you say you're the king. Sort this. Prove this. Do this. You said, if you're really the king, do this one thing for me. I've done it all sorts of times. It might be that absolutely odious rotten to work for, demoralizing boss that we would love to be removed. It might be a a spiteful member of your extended family that you would love to have their mouth shut or to have their comeuppance. It might be simply you would love just for once in your life to be on the top of some situation where you feel you're always at the bottom of a pile of rocks to be vindicated, to be shown to be right, to succeed. It might be to do with illness and health, the shape of your family, your future. Now, what's lovely here, what's really worth hearing here is the way Jesus responds to John. He is so gentle. He is so loving. He is so kind. He doesn't effectively throw a rock back at John. And this must have been really hurtful for Jesus. We have to remember, Jesus is fully human as well as fully God. This is his cousin. This is the first person to ever publicly acknowledge who he is. And John, his cousin, his acknowledger, his own signpost, is now doubting him. How hard must that have been for Jesus? Imagine what it's like when somebody who is your best buddy, your partner, your work colleague, somebody you've always trusted, just doubts you for one minute moment. How easy it would have been for Jesus to hurl a rock back at John to say, you idiot, you have no idea what you're talking about. He doesn't. It's beautiful. See, Jesus knows the situation John's in. Jesus knows the situations we're in. He allows us, if you like, to rant and to rave at him. Actually, the Psalms are full of it. I think the Bible almost commands it. We're allowed to say to God, God, I need you to act. God, why haven't you done this yet? But at the same time, Jesus says to John very gently, don't lose trust in me just because I'm not following your agenda. Don't lose sight of who I am just because I'm not doing what you expected me to do. Don't imagine that because I'm not being the sort of king you wanted me to be that somehow I'm not the king. Verse 4, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, John, hang in there. Hold on. Open your eyes and see and hear what I'm really doing. Now, that was more than simply a list of stuff. This wasn't simply Jesus reeling off his sort of CV, you know, a list of accomplishments. This was Jesus helping John really graciously, very kindly, 
to see that the picture the Bible paints of what this new king was going to do was far richer, far broader than simply coming in with a great big sword and killing all their enemies. Actually, that the picture of the Messiah was that of blessing, the bringing in of God's kingdom, as well as a day of judgment for those who refuse. What Jesus is doing here is effectively quoting from the prophet Isaiah, taking John back hundreds of years to a place and a time of exile when God's people didn't have their own king, but it wasn't just that they had some sort of oppressor who'd invaded. They'd been invaded, and most of their greatest and good had been picked up and carried into a far land where they didn't have a king at all. And in the context of exile, Isaiah has made a beautiful beautiful promise. Turn with me, would you? Just keep your finger, if you would, in in Matthew and turn back uh, just a few pages. Uh, We're going to go to Isaiah 61, and that's on page 748. Now, I think Jesus is actually referring to three or four passages from Isaiah. And don't forget, John would have known these back to front, front to back. He'd have known every word. These would have been words of immense, rich significance for him. But listen if you can hear the echo. So, remember, Jesus says, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Hundreds of years before, Isaiah promises, chapter 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And then just, I'll I'll turn to it rather than you having turned to it, Back a few chapters in Isaiah 35. Listen to this promise. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Do you hear it? Jesus is saying you're longing for God's king to come. You're longing for him to follow your agenda. But don't miss God's agenda for his king. God's agenda for his king is to bring nothing less than new life. John wanted a king removed from his throne. John wanted at one place and in one time an oppressive regime toppled from their throne. And it's not that God somehow doesn't care. It's simply that God has something even bigger to do. God has water to bring in the desert. God has life to bring in the midst of death. God has sight and hearing and able limbs to bring to those who feel crushed. God has blessing to bring in a place of cursing. Jesus says to him, don't stumble, don't trip, don't fall. I am the one that was promised. I have come to be God's king. Don't stumble on account of me. Now, if we had time, we could go on and look at the rest of that little passage in Matthew chapter 11 from verse 7 onwards, and you'll see that what Jesus does is even more than that. He helps John to see that in his um, sort of uh, 
view of the world, he simply um, missed a step. That actually this vengeance from the God, this proclamation that actually you need to turn back to God and repent, this Elijah-style um, uh, dealing with the forces of evil is actually John's job. That he's the Elijah. That he's the one that came to, to um, preach repentance. And that Elijah's job then was to point to Jesus. But for the moment, let's sit with John in that prison. Let's ask the question, uh, how many times in my life do I try and set God's agenda for him? How many times do, if you like, I set God a test? Well, God, if you're really God, you'll do this one thing. It's only one thing. It's only ever one thing, isn't it? Uh, it's only one thing I'm asking of you, God, and you know it's really important. You know it is. And the, let's hear the beauty of the way Jesus responds. He doesn't say, don't be silly, don't be pathetic. How could you possibly think that thing's important? Jesus responds with compassion, with grace, with love. His heart would have been broken for John, his cousin, rotting in a Roman prison. But he had something far bigger to give him. Are we willing in the midst of our moment of need, our time of need, yes, to express what we need to our Heavenly Father? We're meant to. We're asked to. And at the same time to say to him, and I know that your purposes, whatever they are for me, are good and gracious and loving. And am I too willing to follow his agenda for my life? Jesus' disciples were sent out to do the same sorts of things Jesus was doing, to speak the same message that Jesus was speaking, to go to the, the four corners of the earth with the good news of Jesus. Am I willing in my life to do the things that Jesus did, to say the things that Jesus was saying, to be the person God meant me to be? Am I going to be able to look back on my life and say, the Spirit of the Lord was on me to proclaim good news to all? to pray, to tell, to serve. Is that what my life is going to look like? But there's one final thing, and with this I finish. John fundamentally had a question. Jesus, who are you? And that is the same question that is addressed to every human being that has ever lived since. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that spoke just astonishing, life-changing words from God? Who is this Jesus who did things that only God could do? Who changed people's lives in a way that only God can change them? Who is this Jesus whose good news has spread to every corner of this world? I wonder whether, like John, you've heard a lot about Jesus over the years. You might have been somebody who was dragged along to Sunday school as a child. You might be somebody who maybe has re-found your way back to church after many years. Maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe you've been going to church all your life. But the biggest question you will ever have to answer is sim that simple one. Who is Jesus? Is he the one sent from God? Is he God's king? God himself come to be with us. God himself come to be for us. God himself come to live and die and rise again. 
And the wonderful thing is that the answer to that question is simply life-changing. It's not about having a PhD in theology. It's not about waiting until we've perfected this beautiful life we're meant to be living. It's in the midst of our doubts and our questions, in the midst of our ignorance and confusion, in the midst of messy lives lived for the best that we can manage but that we hope people don't look at too closely. In the midst of all of that, simply to say to Jesus, I do believe that you are who you claim to be. And I do want to live my life for you as my king, receiving and enjoying your love and forgiveness, showing that love and forgiveness for others, being part of your people. Maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day that you need finally to say to Jesus, okay, I don't have all the answers yet. I'm certainly not living a perfect life. There's loads of stuff I reckon I'm going to trip up over. But enough's enough. Yes, you are who you claim to be. And yes, I am going to live a life of response to you. If that's a question you've never answered, sort of almost out loud to yourself and to others, maybe today's the day to do it. I'm going to pray a a very simple prayer, and it's one that if you'd like to, if now's the moment, you could simply pray quietly in your heart. And it says three very simple things. It says, I'm sorry that I'm not the person that I intended to be or that you've made me to be. Thank you for your life and death and resurrection for me. Please help me to love you back in all that I am and all that I do. Sorry, thank you, please. Let's pray together. And if that's a prayer you'd like to echo in your heart, why don't you do so? Just quietly in the quietness of your heart. Jesus, I'm sorry that I'm not the person you made me to be. Jesus, I thank you for your life, for your death, for your resurrection for me. And I thank you for your forgiveness and offer of new life. Please help me to receive your spirit now and to live a life of response as I love you back. Amen. And Heavenly Father, for all of us, we pray that alongside John, we would be willing to have eyes and ears open to who you are each day. And in the midst of our need, in the midst of our messy lives, we pray that you would help us to respond to who you are and to live out a little bit more of your life in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.